0: Hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia, and yet again, we have an awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Melanie Finch, who is a lecturer in geology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Melanie. Thanks so much Amelia
1: it's such a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today hopefully going to start with an easy question
1: what is your job? Yeah it sounds like it would be an easy question this is actually one that I really struggle with you know when I have to fill it out on forms at you know airports and stuff like that because uh, I I guess it's a few different job titles for my job so one is a a lecturer and that's my proper job title Uh, but I'm also a geologist Uh, I'm a structural geologist uh, and an academic. So uh, my job, I guess my job has three different parts. So there's a part that is um, research. So conducting research in um, how rocks deform. So that's what I do as a structural geologist. And then there's a part that's about teaching. So I teach uh, undergraduate and postgraduate students at Monash Uni, all about geoscience and about how uh, earth moves, how mountains are made, how, why volcanoes erupt, you know, really awesome things like that. And then uh, the last part of my job is what we call service. Uh, but and that's kind of different for every academic. But for me, it's about that service role is about creating gender equity and geoscience. So I have um, that's yeah a part of my role as well.
0: That's awesome. There's a lot of things there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a really uh, multifaceted job. And that's really interesting, because my students, they think that all I do is teach. uh, So that, you know, they often say at the end of semester, like, oh, bye, have a nice (laughs) holiday. And I'm like, oh, no, this isn't a holiday. This is when all of my research needs to happen. (laughs) So it's, um, yeah, it's a really exciting and diverse job for sure.
0: I think lecturing is kind of underrated in how complex it actually is, because you have to be able to understand things and communicate them to people in a way that's engaging, but you also need to be like at the cutting edge of your own research. That's, they're they're very different skills you need to have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's really difficult for someone to be good at all the different components of being a lecturer so some people are really awesome at research and thinking of new ideas and things like that Uh, but maybe they struggle a bit more with the teaching it doesn't come as naturally Uh, whereas other people are the opposite so they love teaching and they love explaining things uh, to to students about you know how the earth works and all that sort of stuff Uh, but maybe the research doesn't come naturally to them and yet it's all in the same job so we just try to be really good at everything
0: (laughs) (laughs) now you mentioned a couple of things about like your topic of interest that I'm curious about I'm going to start with how rocks deform because in my head and I think in a lot of people's heads a rock is a rock right and eventually it might you know break down into sand which is just basically teeny tiny rocks but I don't think about them deforming as such I just think about them like getting smaller yeah, absolutely.
1: It's such an amazing thing to think about. So one way that you can kind of think about how rocks deform is that if you have a rock on the surface of the earth and you hit it with a sledgehammer and it breaks, then it's, it's formed, a, it's, you know, it's broken, it's formed a fracture. So that's kind of like a type of rock deformation. But what I look at is rocks that are way that deformed when they were far deeper within earth. So but to to step back a bit, I mean, I guess most people probably know that Earth's crust is broken up into tectonic plates and that they move around Earth relative to each other. So when tectonic plates collide, then you end up with big mountain ranges like the Himalayas uh, or or like the Andes. Uh, And when tectonic plates uh, move apart from each other, then you end up with big ocean basins. So uh, every time... Tectonic plates are moving relative to each other. Every time there's a boundary, uh, there's a there's a what we call a shear zone there. So rocks are deforming in that zone. So the way that rocks deform in that zone when they're deep down inside Earth is that there are parts of the rock that do all the deforming and you can kind of think about these as rock conveyor belts so if you picture I mean if you can picture back to the last time you're in an airport which maybe was a long time ago <laughs> it's be one for me. but if you picture the the travelators you get on in the airport they just you can just sort of stand there and they move you along shear zones are kind of like those tra- travelators like kind of like the conveyor belts of the earth and they move rocks from one place to another place so all of the Himalayas, a huge mountain range that's like thousands of kilometres long and like nine Ks high, that whole thing was uplifted by movement on these shear zones, these rock conveyor belts that can move uh, move mountains really. Uh, so I study the sorts of processes that occur in these shear zones, uh, how rocks can deform and flow. And the way that they deform and flow like these like in these conveyor belts is when, when they're warm, uh, so when they're about 10 or 15 kilometers deep within Earth's crust, the temperatures a lot higher and the minerals can actually change shape. So instead of just breaking like a rock would do if you hit it with a sledgehammer, the minerals actually change shape and they stretch out and that's how we can we can uh, effectively have the rock flow almost like honey, but really really sticky honey. <laughs> okay,
0: the the idea of a a flowing rock that isn't, is is it they're not just flowing because they've melted they're also flowing because they've just experienced so much pressure
1: exactly yeah so they've experienced yeah I know it's amazing so they've experienced a lot of stress it's all caused by stress so when you know just say two tectonic plates collide and the rocks on each tectonic plate smash into each other then uh, that exhibits sort of that Puts a big force onto the rocks, and that force is what causes uh, the these shear zones to form and these rocks to deform. So, yeah, it's you can yeah you can think about melted rock like lava. It's it's almost like that, but way 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 slower because the rock's not melted. It's just uh, the, the just the the crystal structure is actually the thing that's deforming.
0: So that's quite mind-blowing, especially just sort of like looking out into the backyard where it's all, you know, chill. Like the land looks very relaxed. And, I mean, we're in Australia, so it is an incredibly uh, geologically stable part of the world. But it's just sort of awesome and terrifying to think that anywhere around the world at any one time there could be movement of rock happening purely due to, Pressure and that the molecular structure is changing, out of control.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, and I think you know. So in Australia, we still have earthquakes. So you still hear every now and then about these sort of earthquakes, and they happen on um, faults and shear zones. So um, faults are like shear zones, but it's when the rock actually breaks. So they they happen on these um, rock conveyor belts that move really quickly. Uh, So we do have those in Australia, uh, but yeah, places like New Zealand, these processes occur a lot more often uh, because we do have two tectonic plates, you know, meeting there uh, and the rocks are moving past each other. And so the rocks need to deform to allow that to happen. So earthquakes are really common there. And so are mountains, which is
0: exciting. True, and they're very pointy mountains because like, unlike ours, they haven't sort of had time to erode and things. Absolutely. So can can we talk about the time scale that this is happening at? Like, Because obviously in my head I'd like to think that this is really slow, kind of like watching a tree grow, but then you think about New Zealand and obviously there's moments where things don't deform in this nice honey-like experience and there's sort of like a judder or but I'm sure there's a technical term <laughs> and things like Christchurch happen like what 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 time scales
1: yeah sure so uh right now in New Zealand um, stress is accumulating and strain is accumulating on these big um on these big fault systems between that are accommodating that deformation between the plates so that will just build up over time until uh, it reaches some limit, and then the the fault will will fracture, so it will um, rupture, and that will cause an earthquake. So yeah, you're right. These this sort of stress does build up over time, um, and that can be the time scale varies. It can be uh, thousands of years, it can be hundreds of years, or it can be millions of years. We also sometimes see that. Um, Deformation can occur slowly, so we have these slow slip events, which are where the shear zones aren't moving very quickly, so they move really slowly, and we can't feel them moving on Earth's surface up here, but we, but. Uh, really sensitive equipment like seismometers can detect these slow slip events. So those slow slip events are um, really great for people living on the surface because we don't get earthquakes when that happens. Uh, But yes, every now and then we do get uh, these really fast slip events and then they cause earthquakes.
0: So the Himalayas, obviously there was a lot of action, you know, there was a lot of movement, that sort of stuff. Is Is the Himalayas still growing? Like what's happening in in that area? Yeah, it is still growing.
1: So they are sort of, we've still got that tectonic force uh, that's trying to push the mountains upwards, but that's uh, also being balanced by the um, erosion of the mountains and by, you know, mountains get to a certain point where they're just, too big. Uh, They're just too high and the weight is just too much and they sort of, they can start to collapse. So there's a lot of research about exactly what is happening in the Himalaya and whether, you know, it's going um, up or coming down and what sort of the overall rates are uh, with with that. But yeah, it's an incredible, um, it's such an incredible mountain range. The, The coolest thing that I know about the Himalayas is that the rock right at the top Of Mount Everest is a rock called a limestone and so a limestone forms deep under the ocean so it forms in a marine setting and it's made up of the skeletons of little marine critters and so that rock has been pushed from underneath sea level to about you know nine kilometers up in the sky it's incredible that you know that that sort of force you know can occur on earth it's amazing.
0: It is that's genuinely mind-blowing the idea that there can be that much yeah. movement and obviously over a long period of time but still that's a long distance for a teeny tiny squish skeleton to go you know
1: yeah absolutely it's really cool and i i also really love how they found that out i think there was a, a geologist commissioned um a mountaineer to go up there and collect a rock because you know climbing Mount Everest and then coming down it's pretty hard so nobody's really focused you know too much on collecting rocks well, <laughs> I, mean, I would be but you know normal people are not uh, so yeah he asked this mountain climber to collect a rock and so he brought it back down and had a look and like oh my goodness it's full of marine skeletons this is incredible like
0: yeah it's awesome and to think we went a very long time without knowing that as well it's. A very big mountain not to really know about.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And we're still, you know, every day we're finding out more and more about the Himalaya, about the mountain forming processes, There's all these cool new theories, you know, coming out all the time about um, these processes of, you know, um, how rocks move around within the mountain range. Uh, There's some, you know, really interesting theories coming out of, you know, the Himalaya for sure, it's a really popular place to do research and it's, you know, obviously incredible to visit as well.
0: Yes, I'm assuming you have visited.
1: I have. I was so lucky to go there a few years ago and I worked in an area in the northwest, so pretty far from Mount Everest, but it was an area called Leh. Um, And so in Leh, uh, you actually, so you fly from Delhi uh, in India up to Leh and the airport is in the middle of the Himalaya, so you fly the um, the altitude is 4,300 meters. So you hop off the plane and you're like, Whoa, okay, it's a big, a big head spin because of that change, uh, that change in altitude. There it was really awesome, and also it's one of those airports where you're kind of flying into a a valley in between mountains. So it's like, oh gosh, I hope that they've, you know, measured this right and they're not gonna hit the sides. And yeah, it was a pretty incredible experience. Uh, But yeah, so I I did uh, some field work there. So we walked, um, you know, for weeks. I think we were there for a month or so. Uh, we walked through and uh, collected rocks and mapped the rocks uh, and really tried to understand uh, the, all these different uh, ways that rocks were deforming within the Himalayas. So that was incredible. But it was actually the first research project I did. So it was in my honours year, which is like fourth year of your education in undergraduate geology. And um, so it was an amazing opportunity. But it was the first, so it was the first real mountain range I'd been to, and it's kind of ruined me for all other mountain ranges because it's the most spectacular one, and nothing else really compares. Uh, so it was an amazing way to start, but also maybe not the best
0: way. <laughs> I like the idea that you you should work your way up, start with some sort of, you know, maybe Australian mountain ranges, and then you know, pick cooler and cooler ones until you sort of peak
1: yeah absolutely peak that's funny it's like a
0: pun Ah, (laughs) um like (laughs) clever yeah
1: yeah well you know I did Yeah, before I went to the Himalaya my only experience of mountains was uh, Mount Dandenong in Victoria which is like 500 meters I think um high so uh, 500 meters above sea level so yeah it was a huge difference
0: (laughs) yes that's that's a leap okay I'm gonna ask you a question that could be a bit off you know but you mentioned earlier that uh, there's a limit to how high mountains can get because they just get too heavy which which makes sense on earth but obviously within the uh, solar system there's different height mountains and Mount olympus comes to mind are they able to grow grow or become bigger because of the differences in gravity
1: Hmm, that's an interesting idea i'm not sure so um the processes of forming mountains on other planets are different to the process that forms mountains on our planet because other planets don't have plate tectonics so we're the only planet we know of that has plate tectonics as we know as we know it um and yeah so I think Mount Olympus I don't know much um about other planets but I think it's a volcanic uh maybe it's volcano yeah, but uh, yes, so I, I'm not, if another planet had plate tectonics, what would the effect of that be on their mountain ranges? Um, I'm not sure because also about the what we call the lithospheric route. So underneath, if you think about an iceberg, uh, so icebergs have a small, a small amount of ice that's poking out at the surface and a huge amount that's underneath the surface. And mountain ranges are the same. So they have this sort of root that's supporting the weight of the mountain above it. So it's more a limit on that lithospheric root, um, you know, as well as processes of erosion that control uh, the height of mountains this is not my area of specialty but it's it's uh something and something to do with those sorts of principles
0: that's okay I think um it was an unfair question to just throw at you and we'll see maybe you can hook me up with a um astrogeologist who specializes in mountains yeah
1: I know some people who are like planetary geologists. Uh, they might have, they would definitely have a much better idea. Actually, some people in my, my research group at work at um, uni, they work on uh, Martian meteorites. So I learned a little bit about, you know, different uh, processes on Mars uh, from and on asteroids and things like that from them. But no one's studying those, uh, those uh,
0: mountains on other planets. So I'll have to get them onto it. Please do. Then they can come on the podcast. Um, and just a quick fact check: uh, a quick fact check. Uh, it's actually referred to as Olympus Mons, which is just Latin for Mount Olympus, and it is a volcano, as according to Wikipedia. so Perfect. We're on it. <laughs> and now back to the script. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what does an average day at work look like for you? And if you want, it can be like your average day teaching versus average day doing research. OK, cool.
1: Yeah, well, because my job is really diverse, I have a lot of different average days. So a teaching day, a day during the semester where I'm teaching a unit, I probably will spend a bit of the day getting ready for the class. So I'll be putting together different um, the resources that I need so usually that's rocks (laughs) so I'm you know getting together the rock samples um, maybe some microscope slides of the rocks depending on which class I'm teaching Uh, so that sort of takes up it takes up a bit of time and energy but of course as you know before the actual day that I'm teaching the class there's a lot of preparation I try to really think of uh, really fun activities for my classes to do. And what I think is fun is uh, things that ask them to be like geological detectives. So they have to put together the clues um, that are provided by the rocks to sort of solve these geological mysteries. So yeah, coming up with all of that and putting it together, that takes a bit of time. Um, yeah, and then yeah, we teach the class. So go into the, the classroom and teach the prac and that's really awesome engaging with the students. So that would be a teaching day. A research day could is also quite diverse. So a research day, I might be uh, in the lab. So I might be uh, crushing rocks or uh, analyzing rocks. I spend a lot of time looking down microscopes. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I spent a few days at the Australian Synchrotron which is right near Monash. So, yeah, so it was really cool. So, it's looking at rock samples there. And uh, so, these really awesome rocks from Port Macquarie that have had been really uh, deep within Earth. So, they've been sort of subducted or thrust downwards to 100 kilometers depth, and then they've come back up. So, all these different things have happened to them. And we've been, we had a look at what sort of minerals were in that rock and how the rocks had deformed. So, that was a pretty cool research day. Um, But then there's also, there's also field day. So I do a lot of field work and uh, a field day, uh, I'll be out somewhere in the field. So yeah, it could be the Himalaya, could be Port Macquarie. Um, I'm going to Mount Isa in a couple of weeks. And um, that looks like, you know, you sort of wake up at your campsite in the morning and make a cup of coffee and get your stuff together you know for the day and then you head out and look at some uh, rocks and you know honestly because I don't know if everyone does this but I honestly can just sit in front of a rock staring at it for like an hour trying to figure (laughs) trying to figure it out it's not always easy and I but it's quite a peaceful way to spend uh, an hour in the field but what we do in the field is we're trying to read the rocks so we're trying to decipher what the rocks are trying to tell us uh, by looking at the minerals by looking at the way the uh, different minerals in the rock have deformed or changed shape uh, and looking at the relationships between different rock types so field days are definitely my favorite no, oh, no, I was going to say they're definitely my favourite days of all, the, of all my average days, but actually all the days have um, really great aspects to them. Like teaching days are really fun. I love uh, talking to the students and getting them excited about, you know, seeing the world like a geologist sees it. And research days are really cool too. So I guess all the average days are excellent. <laughs>
0: What about the average days where you have to sit down and do the data analysis and the writing of the papers? Yes, of course. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. you've called me out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't let it sound too cool, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was
1: definitely a, a big uh, part of it. And that's such a, I mean, I really enjoy writing, um, but it is very challenging, like trying to think about how to, communicate things in a way that's simple and effective and how to structure arguments sort of the best way and of course you know I have research students as well so I meet with them fairly often and um, you know we talk about all these sorts of things about how to communicate effectively in papers and um, you know in presentations as well as about their specific research so uh, yeah they um, and that part's really good as well. So I've just gone back to the good parts again instead of the boring parts. But, yeah, writing can be a bit tedious. Yeah, and data analysis can also be um, a bit tedious. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's such a good mix. Any time you get bored with one thing, you can move on to a funner thing and then
0: go back to the boring thing later. <laughs> it does seem to be one of the perks of academia, definitely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. What are you hoping to find out about Port Macquarie?
1: Port Macquarie is Port Macquarie is really interesting. There's this small area, like a few hundred metres across, where there are some rocks that have been subducted down to a hundred kilometers depth. So subduction is where one tectonic plate slides under another one. Um, so when one tectonic plate slides under another one, the rocks, the tectonic plate that's moving downwards. Um, that's we call that the subducting plate. So these rocks have been subducted down to yeah about um, yeah about 100 kilometres depth, and then they've come back up. But during that process of subducting down to 100 kilometres depth they have been really sheared because if you think about you've got one plate, um, there's one tectonic plate sitting on top and there's another tectonic plate that's sinking underneath it and that's a lot of deformation occurring between those two plates and that's exactly where these rocks were at that that interface between the two plates. So the rocks are really deformed, it's a big uh, shear zone, so one of these rock conveyor belts and there's also really weird minerals. So when when rocks subduct like that uh, all these different kind of rock types mix together so they they get really broken up because there's so much stress and they kind of yeah they mix together um you know bits and pieces mixed together and kind of form these rocks that are these hybrid types of rocks that we don't see anywhere else on earth there's also a lot of water that's moving through these rocks so it makes really weird um compositions of rocks so it's probably the most challenging place I've ever worked because um, it's just so complicated. But it's really amazing. And not many people have worked there before, which is kind of crazy because the the field site is on the beach. It's amazing. It's just like a wonderful place to work, but it is really complex. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to figure out um, a few things from all the work we've been doing. We've certainly been throwing everything at it. So we've got synchrotron work and microscope work and field work and we're just approaching it from every angle to try and uh, understand what these rocks are trying to say.
0: I love it. I love that there could be something that so many people would walk past every single day and they they still haven't been, like it's not as hard as getting a rock from the top of Everest, you know? Like it's on the beach, it would be a fairly nice field site.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and I think that, so these rocks have been, you know, a couple of people have looked at them before, but nowhere near the amount of attention, attention that similar sorts of rocks have received, so there are rocks like these rocks Um in, on the Greek islands, so those have got to be some of the most researched rocks on earth. You know, the Greek islands are an incredible place to visit um, and they've got these incredible, you know, these incredible sheared rocks that have been also been subducted. So we've worked there as well. Um, yeah, but, and, but these rocks in Port Macquarie are a lot closer to home and they have really been studied a lot less than places like, um, you know, Syros
0: in Greece, which is one of the Greek islands. Fantastic. I will keep an eye out for what what results come out of this because that that'll be cool.
1: Yeah, it's pretty exciting, and I think actually the New South Wales government, or maybe the Geological Survey of New South Wales, they're starting to do more about uh, about letting people know about the treasure that's on the beach there in rock form. Uh, so they've, I think they're starting to put up signs along um, the the walking track that goes along the beach there and you can find out more about the geological history that's written in the rocks down there because as well as um, these cool rocks that have been to 100 kilometers depth there's also parts of the ocean floor and parts of the mantle and yeah all these awesome rocks in Port Macquarie
0: I think this will definitely be something that the locals can be proud of yeah absolutely how have you ended up in this job like what was your path say from high school? To where you are now was rocks always the passion?
1: No and I think that if you speak to a hundred geologists they'll probably tell you a hundred different pathways because it's so rare that someone comes out of high school thinking that they want to be a geologist um, and that's partly because there's not much focus on geology at high school uh, but so when I was in high school for example I studied music and drama uh, so I thought I was going to be a uh, famous and on the stage and I was really I loved it and I was in all the school plays and things like that so that was amazing and so even in like year 12 year 11 I didn't do science and maths I did all music and drama subjects I I did psychology which is yes science as well but um yeah none no physics no chemistry so um yeah I was really sure that that's what I was going to be in that field but then I and then I um enrolled in a bachelor of music at Monash Uni where I am now and um, I did that for six months and I was like oh gosh I've made a terrible mistake (laughs) so it was so different to my experience at high school the people in that degree are just amazing and just huge dedication to their different instruments and uh, yeah so practicing sort of eight to ten hours a day at least um, and it just wasn't sort of it just wasn't as fun as what I thought it would be it was really different to high school so it just wasn't the right place for me which was totally fine so I was like oh gosh what am I going to do with my life now because I was pretty intent on uh being famous uh but so I thought back to what else did I do at high school and yeah I you know thought okay well psychology so psychology was something I was interested in and you know how people work and how groups work I was interested in that, and. The experimental work was really cool. So I um, enrolled, I switched from my music degree into a Bachelor of Science at Monash and I started doing psychology. So we're still not at geology. So it's quite a circuitous <laughs> path. But yeah, so I, I did this psychology um, course and at the same time I did astronomy. I don't know why I chose astronomy, but I just think it, yeah, it was interesting and I loved it. I loved astronomy and astrophysics. I would say I loved it more than psychology it was just this natural fit and the thing I loved about it was just figuring out things about the universe like our Pratt classes were looking up at the stars and figuring out the you know figuring out the luminosity of pulsar stars and things like that it was so cool and I loved it so much but Because I hadn't done science and maths in high school, it was a huge learning curve. And so when it came time to choose between psychology and astronomy or astrophysics for my major, I was like, well, I think I'll do psychology because I just don't feel like I can get up to speed enough to do astrophysics. So I did psychology and then I did honours in psychology. And then I worked as an experimental psychologist uh, for the Defence Science and Technology organisation. So now they're called the Defence Science and Technology Group. Uh, and they're, so they're part of the government that do research into um, research to support the defense force so i was working uh, on human factors issues that uh, pilots face so for instance looking at um, how brains process visual information and how that affects people using um, night vision devices when they're flying helicopters so that that sort of um, that sort of thing so yeah, that was cool and it was interesting. It was definitely a, a whole new world and I felt like it was for me. It was the most interesting type of psychology research work I could do. I was I thought it was really cool, but I actually but I knew it wasn't the right fit for me. Like I knew that that's not where I wanted to be for the rest of my life and so I'm like, "Oh gosh, I need to figure out what I'm going to do instead." And then around that time, I went to this conference that was called From Stars to Brains. And so this conference, it was really unusual. It was, uh, so I was there for the part that was about human consciousness, that's the psychology part, and that was right at the end. But where it started was from stars, so from the Big Bang. So the there are presentations from researchers, from scientists working in these different fields, and the first few were about the Big Bang and the first few seconds of the, of the universe and about astronomy and astrophysics and all that cool stuff. And then in the middle there was all this stuff about, the formation of Earth and of the fo- and of the solar system, um, and then eventually the evolution of life and of humans, and but yeah, that middle part where it was about the formation of Earth and like plate tectonics and. Volcanoes and mountains. I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! This is the coolest thing I've ever heard about." I had no idea that this existed, that this was something that you could do, that you could study. But this is where I'm supposed to be. So <laughs> then I went back to Monash for the for the third time, and I um, enrolled in this thing they call a graduate diploma in geoscience, and that's where you can just do a a major sequence. Um, if you've already done a science degree there, so I just did that part time while I was still working at DSTO, and yeah, I, fi- and I finished my degree, and then I did honors, and then I did a PhD, and I loved it. So, yeah, that's how I ended up where I am now.
0: <laughs> that was a wild ride. I can't imagine Year Twelve you or anyone around you being able to see what was going to come next. That's fantastic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think least of all anyone who ever taught me science in, you know, so now I'm asked sometimes to go back to my old high school and do, you know, just to chat to the, to the, it was an all girls high school, to chat to the girls there um, to talk about what I'm doing and my path and whatever. And yeah, one time I did that, Um, I saw my old Science teacher, and she was like, "What do you mean that you're a scientist?" <laughs> so I think you know, but people people change, right? Like people, are, you know, our interests evolve over in time. But you know, the thing is, right? When I was a kid, um, I would wonder things like, "Well, I, ha- I wonder how that mountain range got to be that." You know, why? You know, my parents would make us go on hikes, but I didn't love the hiking aspect. But I would always wonder, like, how mountains you know, came to be like they are and why volcanoes erupted and, you know, so I actually had this curiosity for those questions when I was a kid and now my job is figuring out the answers to those questions. So that's super cool.
0: We just needed somewhere, well, like I think the whole journey is important and that like makes you who you are now and no doubt you have a unique perspective of any geologist on things, but it would also have been awesome if there was information available to you back at school that made it seem like answering those questions could actually be a career path.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it would be great if we, you know, it breaks my heart to think about all the potential geologists out there in the world who don't know anything about geology being an option for them because I feel like, I don't know. I mean, it, obviously I'm in working in the field, so I think it's the most interesting thing that there is, but I feel like maybe there are other people who also would like to understand why volcanoes erupt and to do all this cool field work and to understand how the earth works and maybe they just don't know that geology is an option that it's a that it's a science that it's a thing that they can work on every day you know so that's that's really cool but yeah i think my i yeah i when i think about my pathway to where i am now there are definitely benefits from this weird path so you know, all that music and drama, you know, I feel fine in front of an audience and that's great because I'm in front of an audience all the time teaching. So that's been really good. And, you know, I think, yeah, so there are, there are good aspects definitely to this, to this pathway. In psychology, you study a lot of statistics, um, so I use that a lot in my work now as well. Yeah, maybe those are the only two good things, but <laughs> the two useful things. But still, I mean, you just have to make... Make peace with the way that you've lived your life, I guess.
0: <laughs> and you have an awesome story to tell.
1: Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a long story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Other than the absolutely fascinating sounding conference, which like, I don't know if that's a thing regularly, but it sounds really awesome. Were there any other like key events that helped you along your path or that, that sort of enabled you?
1: That was definitely, that conference was you know definitely the biggest light bulb moment for sure like i you know i will always remember that moment of going wow this is amazing that's where i'm supposed to be you know that's it was incredible but i did have another similar light bulb moment when i was in my undergraduate geology degree and so we we went on this field trip to Buchan, um the buckan caves are in victoria and when we were there, we were um, out all day, and we were mapping rocks. And these rocks had formed uh, folds, so they'd been deformed, so that they look like you know chevron shapes. And uh, we were mapping those and looking at all these different rock types. And I was standing on top of a hill there in Bucken and looking out, and I just you know I just felt like this is the best job in the world. Like this is this is my lab. Like I get to walk around these hills and make and make maps of these rocks and pick up these rocks and understand what they mean and read the rocks and it's just that was like the the coolest thing to me like within geology that that you could spend your days like that that was amazing and so that moment was what made me decide that I wanted to be a field geologist so I'm I'm a structural geologist I study how rocks to form but I do it by looking at rocks in the field where in places where the rocks um, were when they formed or in their natural, in their natural habitat, <laughs> we call it in situ, so where the, the rocks are still in the place where they formed. So, um, I mean, yeah, the, so a lot of the rocks I look at were way deeper within the earth and have been brought to the surface, but their, their context with other rocks around them has been preserved. So, um, yeah, that's the type of geology that I love doing, being outside and solving these geological puzzles
0: is really cool. And I'm going to interrupt there to give a shout out to Bucking Caves. If you can uh, go and visit, you definitely should uh, because it's an awesome cave tour. There's the the wonderful caves to visit. Um, But also Bucking obviously got burnt at the beginning of 2020 and they would love your tourist dollars. So if you can go there, you can appreciate awesome geology and contribute to East Gippsland's economy. And it's like all the wins.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, and it's not very far either. It's just a couple of hours, three hours, I think. Yeah, so it'd be a nice, uh, a nice little day trip, maybe, or maybe I'll make a whole weekend of it. That would be a fantastic trip. I'd, I'd make the whole weekend.
0: It's good. The the Buckingham caves have got yeah. a great story to them. Awesome. Yeah, cool. What advice would you give to young Melanie or anyone who's considering? Like, let's just say we've we've got the word out to young people that they can study and work in geology what advice would you give to them
1: so a big part of my job and the job of a modern scientist is being an excellent communicator so that's written and verbal communication but it's also having a strong social media presence so i don't think that many people in science understand this yet but Being on social media, interacting with uh, the general public, but young people who might become geoscientists later, and also people within your community, it's so important uh, for getting your work known by other people and for exciting the next generation of geoscientists and the general public about what we do. So I think, yeah, social media is really important. And I think that uh, for young people who um, may be coming through PhDs or who are um, who are in undergraduate or even high school, like getting involved in social media and in science, communication on social media is really important and something that you can start anytime. So I'm part of this Program that it's run by Science and Technology Australia called the Superstars of STEM, and in the Superstars of STEM we do lots of training on how to become a STEM superstar by uh, communicating effectively and, and uh, engaging with the general public, and, and yeah, so we do lots of training, and a lot of that is actually about social media. That's how important it is that it's a huge focus, and in our social media training uh, we were you know, the training was delivered by experts in the field. And so these experts were social influencers in science. So we had, uh, doing our um, our Instagram tra- Instagram training, we had two awesome science communicators who were people, who two women who just finished their PhD uh, PhDs in I think, bio- biology, and uh, they were training us on how to be Uh, effective communicators through that medium and they have been doing it during their PhD so it's just never too early to start and I see undergrads on LinkedIn and on Twitter now and it's such a good idea so I think that my advice would be to become a better communicator uh, through engaging with social media now but also through written and verbal communication so I guess for people in high school like things like joining a debating club that would be a great experience for becoming a scientist and talking in front of people. Um, for me, it was being in school plays so, and production, so that made me more confident in front of people and um, communicating and made me more, a better lecturer now. Um, and for written communication, you know, I think just writing, practising um, writing things and reading things, so become a reader and, um, you know, read the conversation, which is an online the Conversation is an online science uh, website, kind of like a science newspaper that's amazing, got amazing science stories in it every week uh, that are communicated in a really awesome way. So, you know, engaging with, uh, with things like that sort of helps get you into that part of science uh, from the start. So I think, and I think, you know, when I, yeah, that, that would be a really great thing for, for, for younger people to, that they could do now if uh, they're thinking of becoming a scientist.
0: And that is the first time anyone has given any advice like that. I love it. It's fantastic. Oh, wow.
1: Well, now I'm really interested what they
0: what advice people give otherwise. But... <laughs> All sorts of things. Does that mean uh, anyone listening can follow you on various channels? Oh, sure. I would love that. That sounds like I was
1: aiming for that the whole time. <laughs> no I would love that so my I'm on Twitter and on Instagram I'm uh, my handle is Melanie Finch underscore so you'll be able to find me there and I'm about I'm actually about to launch uh, pretty soon 100 days of geology which is a so I'm going to post every day for a hundred days, and it'll be photos uh, from my work, from you know everything from the Himalayas uh, to to Greek islands to Port Macquarie, and photos down the microscope. Uh, and so I'm going to post every day and explain what you're looking at in the photo and give the scientific explanation for. For what's there. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be cool. I'm excited about it. I've already started writing uh, the posts and putting them all together to make sure that I commit to the 100 days. Uh, so get some momentum going. But I think, yeah, I'm really um, excited to see how people engage with that.
0: I love it. That's an awesome challenge.
1: Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Definitely encourages me to get out on the weekend and go see some rocks so I can post about it as well. So there's multiple benefits.
0: <laughs> and I I don't know if it'll fit in with your, your story, but having taught a lot of grade 3s about geology through the years, obsidian is one of like the favoured stones or, or rocks because of, um, oh, I've forgotten the game. Oh a computer game where people build houses anyhow there's a computer game obsidian uh is like the the special rock and as a result there is a a huge obsidian fan base out there so i don't know if it's of interest for you to tap into it but um they're there the obsidian fans
1: i will that's super cool. I'm definitely going to factor that in. I have some obsidian from New Zealand. Um, so obsidian is so cool. It's it's not within my uh, field of research, but it's volcanic glass. So it's rock that has, so it's lava that's erupted out of a volcano and crystallized really, really, really quickly. And so that it forms a glass. Um, so it's really incredible. It's also really sharp. Um, so when you find it in the field, you have to be quite careful. Um, but yeah, it's in, yeah, it's an incredible rock. I can definitely uh, talk about that. And as it as it um, obsidian weathers, it forms these sort of um, these snowflake shapes. Forming these we call it snowflake um, obsidian. It sort of looks like snowflakes um, that are on this really shiny black rock. So maybe I'll, I'll post about um, snowflake obsidian. Maybe that'll
0: get people engaged. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. And it's Minecraft. Oh, I have just okay. remembered. Awesome. Yep. Okay, cool.
1: I probably <laughs> should know that. I need. I should be more engaged with what people are doing. <laughs>
0: well, the, and also the problem is, I've just given you a fact that was true like four years ago. It may now no longer be true. Okay,
1: I'll Google it. We'll, or I'll just try it and we'll see. I don't, I don't have to be cool. It's uh, yeah, I can be vintage. Four years ago, it's vintage.
0: <laughs> I love it, and I'm gonna like it because I, I I'm now really curious about the idea of stuff like snowflake obsidian not starflake though I like that phrase
1: yeah I like that phrase too Yeah, cool okay great I will add it in to my to my posts
0: (laughs) is there anything that you wish the general public understood about your work whether it's lecturing or geology like are there uh, misconceptions out there or myths that you'd like to take this opportunity to squash
1: I mean, I guess, you know, as I was saying before that I just wish more people knew about geology and that how cool it is that we study like volcanoes and mountains and earthquakes and like water resources and paleontology. So dinosaurs, evolution, you know, all these things fall under geoscience or geology. Um, So that's really cool because, you know, I think actually that a lot of people equate geology with the fossil fuels industry. Um, So which I don't, yeah, I'm not sure if that's true, but I do hear from students that they thought that geology is about fossil fuels. But in reality, not many geologists work in the fossil fuel industry. Most geologists work in research institutions like um, universities and or like CSIRO or the Geological Surveys or environmental companies. Um, and then some others work in the minerals industry. But um, in the minerals industry, we're seeing more and more of a focus on... Um, efforts to find what we call critical minerals. So these are minerals that are critical to the green energy revolution. Well, what I, yeah, so they're like things like rare earth elements and copper. Um, so those things go into wind turbines. Uh, so we need those for green energy. Uh, and or well, lithium and cobalt, they go into electric car batteries. So finding more of those um, elements and the minerals that those elements are in um, is really important because we're seeing that if we want to switch off the coal mines, I guess you say, I don't know how coal mines work, but if you want to get rid of this reliance on fossil fuels um, and have a big proportion of our energy coming from renewables, we actually have to make a lot more, uh, you know, tech. So solar panels and wind turbines and electric car batteries. And for that, we're going to need to find a lot more of these critical minerals. Um, But, you know, actually what we're seeing is that we're not getting enough students into our geoscience classrooms at university. So the numbers are actually dropping. So right at the time when we need a flood of students into our critical minerals research and into our universities, we're actually losing students. So in a few years, it's actually going to be the lack of students graduating out of our courses and going into the minerals industry that will be holding up this green energy revolution. We actually really need more students. So I guess, yeah, the the yeah misconception about what geology is and what um, it's, yeah, what it's not is... Yeah, it's been it's been a little bit um, damaging to our reputation, but geology is really cool. Like the research is amazing. Like you know, I was I'm obviously on the research side with mountains and shear zones and things like that. But the mineral industry is also really important for climate change. So there's a lot to love in geology. Wow,
0: and oh, like obviously we need these materials and and that sort of stuff. And but okay, you've had a bit of a a reputational damage that needs to be undone? I'm not sure. I, all I, so I, I think
1: so. I think that, you know, when we get first years into it, so we've got a combined course at first year, that's environmental science, um, earth science, geology and uh, atmospheric science. So we get a lot of students who um, care a lot about the environment, which is awesome. And I like, I care a lot about the environment too. And when I chat to them, they are surprised about what geology is and what I'm teaching them, which is, yeah, about all this cool stuff, Um, and that it's, yeah, that it's not really about that fossil fuel industry, especially not now um, as much as it used to be, I guess. But, yeah, we've always just had a small number of geologists going into that industry. So, yeah, I think it it is a, a misconception, but, yeah, it's a bit of a... bit of a shame and it's global so it's not just um yeah it's not just at at Monash it's not just in Melbourne it seems to be all across the world that we're seeing this dip in student numbers so we think it had yeah this relationship with um the fossil fuel industry might have something to do with that but maybe um people just don't realize how awesome geology is and how um, fun it is to work in this field so yeah I definitely want people to know about that as well
0: and I think whilst it may seem small, 100 days of geology can only help, for sure.
1: Yes, I hope so, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, of course, you being here, etc. We We will do our best, uh, people.
1: Yeah, no, well, it's, yeah, it's great to kind of get, get the word out, um, yeah, and try and encourage more people to come and find out what geoscience is all about in our universities.
0: And remember, it's not necessarily what it was like at school. If you even got to do some at school, what you experienced at uni with the field trips and that sort of stuff, whole other level.
1: Yeah, we do. I do. Yeah, I I teach first year students um, a bit, and they do. They say that as well, that it is quite different to what they did at high school. So that's cool, and they love it. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a cool thing to study.
0: Now, I think I haven't mentioned, but you earlier ages earlier you talked a little bit about gender equity did you want to talk about that now the work you're doing there sure
1: yeah so I do a few different things in that space but really the part of that work that I love the most is um, about mm, supporting and advancing other women in the field in the field of geoscience and within earth and environmental science So I'm part of an organisation called WMESA, which stands for Women in Earth and Environmental Sciences Australasia. So at WMESA, we're trying to create a unified uh, Australasian network of women working in earth and environmental sciences. But in academia, uh, industry and government, so all three of those. So trying to build that across all those different organisations. So we do lots of different things in WMESA. We have lots of different activities uh, so, I run a monthly seminar series which I um, really enjoy since it's going pretty well. So, in the seminar series, a woman from um, Earth Environmental Science in um, somewhere in Australasia does a talk for us, and uh, yeah, so that's super cool. And we have other things like uh, local meetups in the different states and the different uh, countries as well. And uh, we have a newsletter. Uh, we do things like Wikipedia edit-a-thons to get more women um, into Wikipedia. So yeah, it's a really awesome organization that just aims to create this supportive network of women um, so we can all kind of help each other. And so yeah, if people are interested in that, um, it's free to join. Uh, so yeah, definitely jump on, um, what's the address, like womesa.net. So yeah, that's how you can join up for free there and um, get involved. So that's a big part of what I do there. And then, you know, I do some other things on the local level within uh, within my school, trying to create um, that network of women within the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. So if people are interested in doing things like that in their own departments, um, whether that be in academia, in universities or in industry or in government I would love I'd be happy to yeah talk about what we do at Monash and um, how it's going Uh, yeah so it's cool I love it I love um, being part of something bigger than me and trying to I don't know yeah women helping women it's really cool so yeah I'm really into it
0: and especially if you've had a bad day or if if things an experiment or something didn't work out like these networks are so invigorating and it's so awesome, like getting to celebrate other people's wins and all that sort of stuff as well. It's like they can they can be a great source of energy and help, helping you stay in the field as well for you.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, networks are so important in science. You know, so a lot of us, a lot of people tell stories about how they got the last job through, you know, their network or whatever. These informal kind of networks can be really important. And, you know, mentors, are really important as well they change the way you think about your job or about the world around you so having access to all those sorts of things is uh, a real advantage I think and can really help people in their
0: careers well done for being such a pivotal part of making that happen that's so cool
1: Oh thanks well it's a big team um, but I'm a very enthusiastic very I'm a very enthusiastic part of the team uh, yeah so it's yeah, it's really cool. I love uh, what we're doing. At it's a cool organization.
0: And we will be including a link to that in the show notes. Don't worry if, um, you, you didn't catch the, the address that will be accessible. Awesome. Thank you. Do you have a virtual high five or shout out, uh, someone or a business or an organization who's do- doing something awesome and deserves the high fives of all the listeners?
1: Yeah, I guess actually I do. So, um, because I'm active in, like, outreach and gender equity and stuff like that, I know that it takes a lot of time and it can take a lot of time away from your science and so you've got to really um, care about it. So I really respect people who are um, active in this space. But, I mean... if you come from, so I'm from in science, women are in a minority or in geoscience are in a minority, Um, but there are other people who have these intersectional minorities and so they're way more in demand. So I like follow on um, Twitter people like um, Carly Noon and Kirsten Banks and Crystal Napoli and so these are amazing, they're all astronomers um, or astrophysicists and they're all um, really active science communicators on Twitter. Um, so Kirsten Banks is um, on. actually, a, she's TikTok famous. She's like the TikTok star. Oh my God, she's amazing. Um, so they're all really cool. So I guess my, yeah, my virtual uh, high five is those three amazing women and science communicators and scientists who are just, um, so they're all um, Indigenous Australian women who are um, in STEM and also Jacinta Coolmartree. I recently watched a TEDx talk um, from her. So she works in um, archaeology in art. She's over in South Australia. And I, yeah, her TEDx talk, if you Google her name, um, is amazing. Like she talks about um, the depth of Indigenous knowledge and um, how we should sort of, I don't know, how we should. Think about that more and respect that more and it's a, yeah amazing work so yeah those are four amazing women in um in stem and indigenous australians who i think are just the best
0: <laughs> and they're amazing scientists they're amazing humans and they're also excellent communicators on the socials so They're worthy of a follow, even if you just want to, um, like, obviously passively gain some new knowledge. But if you're thinking, "Oh, I think it'd be good to start some social media," but I don't really know what to start, totally recommend following them, and because they're great role models in that area, they're they're awesome. I love it. Great high five! Yeah, all the high (laughs) fives. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Melanie. This has been very educational i'm I'm slightly terrified about like the deep deformation of the rocks that are happening underneath me, but I'm sure I'll be able to sleep at night anyhow it's It's been awesome, and keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much,
1: it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I yeah, I hope I haven't worried you too much about the deforming rocks. It's going to be okay. we're talking millions of years these things happen over, so yeah, I think you'll be okay.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being, and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter, and get all the download on the upcoming episodes, and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.